Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy Investing Podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Brian Eastman. Welcome, everybody. This is Jeff Brown, better known around the country as the Bald Guy. Today, we're going to be talking to an elite specialist in self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks, Brian Eastman. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I'm in San Diego. It's always cool. So what are we going to talk about in the, the retirement plan space today, Jeff? We're going to talk about estate planning, which is usually kind of dry, but as it relates to self-directed IRAs and 401ks, it gets pretty interesting. Why don't you start out by just laying out some basics for us? Sure. Well, you know, when you have a self-directed retirement plan, whether it's an IRA or a 401k, the basics of estate planning are the same as in any other retirement plan. But it's something a lot of us put off and don't think about. And of course, the idea is you, you want to accumulate enough wealth in your retirement plan that there's more than you're going to ever spend. And that left over, where is it going to go? Well, you want to choose where that's going to go and you want to think wisely as opposed to just, oh, gee, you're dead and your heirs got to sit around and figure it out. And maybe they're in the best position, maybe they're not. The real first level consideration is who is the beneficiary? And when you set up an IRA or a 401k, you're going to designate beneficiaries. And there's some tax rules that go around that. For most people who are married, the logical option is to make your spouse the, what's called the primary beneficiary. So something happens to you, your spouse takes over the account. And in most all cases on a spousal inheritance, they pretty much just change the name on the account and it becomes their account. So they can just continue operating it, continue accumulating wealth as you've been during your lifetime. When you go beyond a spouse, say your spouse predeceases you or you're not married or divorced or something happens to both of you at the same time, whatever, well, then you want to have contingent or secondary beneficiaries. And this is where it gets a little more interesting, a little confusing to folks and where we recommend that they work with their estate planning expert. You can have a non-spousal inheritor, such as a child or a grandchild or a friend or whatever, and they're going to have different rules for how they have to take over the account. They can't just sort of put their name on it, continue operating it. They could do that to a certain degree, but they're going to be required to pull money out. You know, you've been able to put money in your retirement plan and leave it in there and let it snowball. Once it becomes inherited, there's a requirement that money be pulled out. How that's done is going to depend on how you specify the inheritance. If you have a named beneficiary, well, then they're going to be able to use their age in doing the math that determines how much has to come out of the account. If you have a non-named beneficiary, somebody who's just named through a general will or through some kind of a more generic trust, and it basically says, hey, the trust is the secondary beneficiary. And then you look into the trust and it says, well, it's naming my children or my grandchildren or my niece or whatever. They're not named. So they may have to use your age. And that means that more money is going to have to come out every year. Now, you can get into more sophisticated trust and create what's called a look-through, and then those people, while they're even in the trust, and the trust is what you modify and update over time, they still are viewed as being named. That's something to think about is how you designate those beneficiaries and what the impact on their need to take distributions is going to be. And that's the key to this is, is how to manage that piece. Those are very clear. Let's start one by one. The normal one is probably going to be a spouse. Mm-hmm. What's the best way to do that? And, and what's expected of the spouse if, say, you have a deceased owner that had two and a half million accumulated in a, either a solo 401k or self-directed Roth IRA? Sure. 
Well, in either case, the spouse is going to be able to just pretty much take over the account and put it in their name, and they're not going to be forced to take distributions or things. There's a few real minor exceptions when there's big age differences and the the account holder was already subject to distributions and things like that. But for the most part, they're just going to put their name on it and treat it as their account. Now, that's a little different in the IRA than in the 401k because the IRA is just, it is, it exists. And you just swap the name on it and you start and continue operating it under the spouse's name and that's all fine. The 401k is an employer-sponsored plan and it's linked to a business. And if you're self-employed and your business has sponsored this 401k, well, when you pass, your business has probably gone too. Now we see some situations where both a husband and wife are running a business together and that business has a solo 401k. But if say, for instance, you know, you were an independent attorney and had your own solo 401k and your wife wasn't an attorney and wasn't involved in that business, well, when you pass, your law practice goes away, the 401 in essence goes away. So in addition to doing the inheritance, the 401k would need to be transferred to an IRA in the spouse's name. And that's not overly complicated or expensive to do, but it's paperwork process and something that needs to be considered in those situations. So while there may be some mechanical reconfiguring of the account, the bottom line with the spouse, however, is that just, hey, the investments are what the investments are. You're just rolling them into a new structure so that that spouse is now the beneficiary receiving the benefit of those funds. There's nothing really that changes beyond that. Very interesting. And let's say it was a Roth solo 401k. All the funds are a Roth. Mm Mm-hmm. If she did not have an IRA already in progress, a Roth IRA, and say she's 67 when her husband passes, she'll definitely want to move the Roth funds and the solo to her own self-directed Roth IRA. Is she going to run into the five-year minimum existence on that Roth IRA before she can pull money out? No. No, that's only on conversions from tax diverged status to Roth status. On the inheritance, it's just, you know, she'll just, again, she'll just say, well, this wasn't a 401k. That 401k has to be terminated because the business has gone away. I'm going to move it into my own IRA. And that's a simple non-taxable just transfer and moving of the account. And of course, if it was of Roth status in the 401k, it will directly transfer into Roth status in her own IRA. But that, that's, that's not an IRA that needs to be seasoned. And what if the business passes on to the family, even her, if not her kids, does she even need a reason just to transfer it to the Roth IRA? It would depend on the situation, you know, her age, you know, is the business going to stay as a owner only business or is it going to the kids and now you have multiple owners and maybe not qualification under the solo 401k format. So a little more situational, but the bottom line is there's going to be a path, you know, without a tax hit the money gets moved around. And then the, the consideration becomes, okay, who's inheriting it? Are they required to start drawing a certain sum out each year? And that's where non-spouses are going to have requirements to draw. A spouse isn't necessarily going to have that, that requirement to draw distributions. Right. And, the, and the, the basis for that question, Brian, was at 67, she's got four, four and a half years before she's going to run into those required distributions if she keeps it in the Roth solo. Yeah, and we've talked about this in the past, even if you're, you know, continuing to operate a business and continuing to qualify and run a solo 401k, as you approach age 70, you want to take any Roth funds and get them out of the solo 401k, which has been a great contribution and accumulation and investment vehicle and get them into a true Roth IRA because even the Roth portion of the 401k is subject to required distributions the Roth IRA is not. So that's a a normal transition, even if somebody hasn't passed. And certainly you would look at those same factors in in the event of a passing and an inheritance. Now, just as parenthetically, and just a quick yes or no, if it's possible, 
many people have a solo and they're completely ignorant about the oncoming rush of RMDs at 70 and a half. Mm -hmm. If they were to start an IRA when they're 69 or 70, say in, in 2018, mm -hmm. and they're going to turn 70 and a half in 2019. So they quick take the whole load of Roth 401k and roll it into the Roth IRA. They're, they're alive. Mm -hmm. Are they also able to start taking money out anytime they want, even though the Roth self-directed Roth IRA is only a year old or so? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because again, it's only the conversion event. If you're taking tax deferred money, paying the taxes on it, converting it to Roth status, that's where you get the seasoning requirement. But if you're taking money that's already in that Roth status and you're just moving it around from one account to another, that doesn't, that doesn't change anything or require seasoning. I asked that question, Brian, because clients ask me that all the time, and they're almost universally shocked sure. that they don't have to wait the five years. Yeah. No, that's just when you're changing the tax status itself into Roth originally. And that's only true, I mean, if you had, you know, say you were 50 and you've got $300,000 in tax deferred money and you say, I'm going to set up a Roth IRA and I'm going to convert that to, uh, to convert 100000 of my tax deferred money into that Roth IRA. Well, when you set up that Roth IRA and you do that conversion, you set the clock for five years. You then come along and do subsequent conversions later. It's that same Roth IRA that's, you know, if they're after five years, that Roth IRA has already been around for five years. The Roth is already seasoned. Now, some of the money may look at it that you have a first in, first out kind of logic. So you could at any time after five years pull anything up to that first hundred and you're good. Your second batch, you may need to give some additional seasoning or not. It sort of depends on certain age factors and other things. If you're over age 59 and a half, it kind of doesn't matter on those secondary conversions. So it gets a little complicated and it gets a little situational, but it's really sort of that first time conversion event that creates that five-year seasoning window that you're, you're thinking of. But as long as it's Roth to Roth, that five years is not a factor. Exactly. And it doesn't matter whether it's going 401k to IRA or IRA to IRA. It's just, it's already Roth money. It's already basically seasoned. So you're, you're just moving where it's held, not changing the account in any, any way. Okay. Now, what if the person who dies and owns the, the solo 401k or the IRA and there's no spouse and they leave it to somebody who is not a child of theirs or a grandchild of theirs? How does that work? It's the same as sending it to any non-spousal. So whether you're sending it to a child or a grandchild or a niece or your best friend from college, you know, who knows, they're going to have the same situation with regards to that IRA, which is if they were named, they're going to use their age for calculating the required distributions that they need to take each year. If they're non-named, such as through a trust, they may have to use your age in doing that same math. But who the individual is once they become a non-spouse doesn't really matter. All, all non-spouses are treated the same. So if you're, say, a son or a daughter, and you're, uh, you're inheriting that from your uh, parent, there's no taking that Roth money and putting it in your own Roth account as a rollover. Correct. It'll be maintained in a separate account because that account's going to be required to have a certain amount of distributions each and every year. So keeping it in its own isolated bucket so that you can track that and do the math is the way that needs to be done. And it, it's named, you know, it's, you know, your own Roth IRA is Jeff Brown Roth IRA. If it was your mother's inherited Roth IRA, it'd be, you know, Mrs. Brown Roth IRA, FBO, Jeff Brown. So it's a non-spousal inherited IRA. So it's looked at and treated and reported differently because the custodian knows, oh, money has to come out of this every year. And, and they want to have that in its own discrete envelope to do that from.
And they'll base that, when mom dies, they'll base that on the age of, of the child as far as how much comes out for how long. And uh, if it's Roth, that money remains tax-free coming out, correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's a key difference between the, t- the tax-deferred approach and the Roth approach. In a tax-deferred account, you're, yeah, providing some uh, additional intergenerational wealth, but it comes with a tax burden. You know, you got to take out $10,000. You might end up paying 2000 of that in taxes and getting eight left. You're taking $10,000 out of a Roth. All of that is tax-free spendable money that you get to use. And, you know, the child or grandchild can use that to cover expenses for their life or they can invest it, you know, in the after-tax world, but it has to come out of the IRA umbrella is the only concern. Right. And if the, if the child has their own solo 401 or, or they inherit the business and now they have their own account inside the business of a, of a solo 401k, they can take that forced distribution and put it right back in their own account and it's all fresh. Mm, not really. Not really. I mean, they could take the distribution and that frees up liquidity so that if they're eligible to make their own new contributions, they have the cash to do so. But it's having to be distributed out of the retirement plan, whether it's tax deferred or Roth. Oh, then that's what I meant. It goes completely out of dad's. Yes. Into son's. And then son then reroutes that money back inside their own solo if they have one. Yeah, they could use it to make new contributions. You know, it just becomes capital. You know, I, I talk to folks all the time. Their business is making $100,000 a year, but they live in some place like Southern California where living is expensive. So even though they could potentially put $30,000 in their retirement plan, they may not have $30,000 lying around after they paid for, you know, putting a roof on their head and food on the table. Well, as long as your tax return says you can put $30,000 in, you don't have to use the business income. You could use other income, savings or whatever. So yeah, if you've taken a distribution from an IRA, that's a pile of cash. You can say, well, my tax return says I can put money in. Here's some money I can use to work towards that. So sort of an indirect contribution. And it helps with that. I have a lot of folks do that, whether it's inherited money or other savings or, or, or whatnot. Now I have many young clients and I count young being maybe 35 at the oldest and they will retire uh, in a combination of self-directed uh, 401ks and IRAs between them and their spouses of 2 to $10 million balance of assets. What do you prefer as the mechanics to be used to pass those on upon death? Well, and again, it always is situational and it's something to discuss with, you know, a licensed estate planning professional. But again, going back to the very beginning, the default is your spouse, obviously, you know, and that's just natural and it's simple and it makes sense. But when you get to the next generation, there's a couple of ways to look at it. Firstly is making sure that whatever you've done, the inheritor is specifically named, either just named as the beneficiary or if it's through a trust that you've worked with a good qualified estate planner that can create what's called a look-through trust, not just your generic trust because otherwise they're going to be using your numbers. Another real key thing, uh, it's often referred to as a stretch IRA or an intergenerational IRA, is by the time you're old enough that you're about to leave this earth, your children are hopefully doing okay for themselves and, and supporting themselves and you know maybe own their own home and their own business, and, and, and they're not necessarily in need of additional money. And maybe they're at the point where they have children who are looking at college or buying their first home. By skipping a generation in your inheritance plans, you reduce the amount that has to come out of the account each year. 
So a child who's in their 50s, they might have to pull 10000 on an account, whereas if it's going to a grandchild in their 20s, they may only have to pull 5000 on that same account. And then more gets to be left in the account, more can mushroom and grow, and, and that wealth that you're passing on can become a longer-term, bigger number for that generation two steps away. So, so that's something that a lot of people, if they've accumulated a decent amount, will do is they'll skip a generation and, and name their, their grandchildren as the inheritors to create that stretch factor. And, and, and that's a real neat thing to do. Gotcha. And of course, the thing to keep in mind is while you have to take out $5,000 as an example, you can certainly choose to take out 10 or 20. You know, you're not prohibited from taking more. There's just a minimum that's required to be taken out. So, you know, you had a first time home purchase and you got this million dollar IRA that you inherited from your grandparents. Sure. Pull out $100,000 to buy your first home in Southern California. You know, it can make sense to do so. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Now, is there anything you'd like to add? That was the main, the main thing is just, you know, the, the idea that you want to be thinking of this, you know, none of us want to think of our own demise, but if you're going to be investing well and, and really creating some wealth, planning what's going to happen with that wealth is going to produce much better results than just sort of not thinking about it. Boy, does that make common sense. Brian, thanks so much, man. You've knocked it out of the park yet again. Well, thanks. It's always good to chat, Jeff. Everybody, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Investing Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, Brian Eastman.